Well, good morning, friends. Let me say two things before I begin. Uh, number one, I want to bring greetings uh, from First Baptist Church. Uh, the saints there greet you all in love. Uh, you are one of the churches that uh, we pray for in our Sunday school, and so uh, it's a special joy for me to be here with you all on a Sunday morning, uh, but it's also uh, a special joy for our church uh, to be able to participate in this pulpit swap with you all. A second, uh, some of you may remember me because uh, I was here, I guess, about six months ago for Pastor Caleb's installation service, uh, and you may remember I said some nice things about him. Now that he's not here, let me double down on everything that I said then. No, I am being serious. Uh, Caleb is uh, an excellent pastor, excellent shepherd, uh, and he is a good friend to me and, and someone that I look up to very much, someone who I go to all the time for counsel and advice. Uh, and so, uh, please, Gateway Church, encourage him, thank him, uh, express your love for him, uh, because he really is an excellent pastor, as, as I'm sure you all know. Well, let's get to work. If you take out your copy of the scriptures and turn to Luke chapter 2. We are going to cover from verse 40 to the end of the chapter. This is the word that God has for you this morning. I'm reading from the ESV. And the child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom. And the favor of God was upon him. Now his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover. And when he was 12 years old, they went up according to custom. And when the feast was ended... As they were returning, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. His parents did not know it, but supposing him to be in the group, they won a day's journey, but then they began to search for him among their relatives and acquaintances. And when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem, searching for him. After three days, they found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them, and asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. And when his parents saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. And he said to them, Why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? And they did not understand the saying that he spoke to them. And he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. And his mother treasured up all these things in her heart. And Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. Let's pray together. Father, it is good for your people to gather together and be in your word. I thank you for these dear saints at Gateway, for their love for the word and I pray that you would be with us now and speak to us through this passage that we might see Christ clearly, that we might see Jesus in his person and his work and rejoice as a result. And we ask this in the name of our risen Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Now, if you would, just look in your Bibles. Look at Luke chapter 2. I want you to see the two narrative sections that surround our passage. 
Luke chapter 2, verses 22 to 39, so that's the, the verses directly preceding our passage, that all happens on the same day. All those events happen on the same day with Simeon and, and Anna and the dedication. That happens on the 40th day of Jesus' life. And so verse 39 leaves us off at day 40 of Jesus' life. And then if you look at chapter 3, right, the, the section that immediately follows, well, that's John the Baptist. That all happens when Jesus is almost 30 years old. Which means, if you think about it, our passage, the passage we just read, verses 40 to 52 in chapter 2, that basically covers everything from day 40 to age 30 of our Lord's life. And so you get a little summary statement in the beginning, right? Look at verse 40. Uh, that basically takes us from day 40 to age 12. We have this one story from when Jesus is 12 years old, and then you get another summary statement at the end, verse 52. That basically takes us from age 12 all the way to age 30. One story. That's all we have from basically the first 30 years of Jesus' life. And if you look at the other Gospels, Matthew, Mark, John, you're not going to find any stories from his childhood, at least after the family comes back from Egypt and settles in Nazareth. Which means, brothers and sisters, the New Testament is 7,957 verses, 260 chapters, 27 books. And verses 41 to 51, those 11 verses, that's all that we have from day 40 to age 30 of Jesus' life. Which reminds us that the Gospels are not just a, a straight-line biography of Jesus' life. Right? They're, they're a focused narrative with a focused point. And so really the focus is on the days before his crucifixion. But if we're being honest, right, that kind of leaves us itching for more information. Like, I don't know, what was he like with his friends growing up? What kind of older brother was he? Like, can you imagine being one of his younger half-brothers? Like, wow, I always get blamed for everything. It's because you are to blame for everything. <laughs> what was he interested in? Like, what did he do with his, his free time? What, what were his favorite foods? Like, we naturally are curious about our Lord. Now, that curiosity has led to some stories being made up about Jesus' childhood. You read some of the apocryphal books like uh, the Gospel of Thomas or the Proto-Evangelium of James. You've got stories about Jesus performing miracles as a child. Uh, there's one about uh, his father uh, cut a piece of wood too short, and so Jesus kind of stretches it out. And that's not surprising that such stories would be invented because the, the miraculous and, and the fantastic, right, that's what grasps our attention. We're really interested in that stuff. Uh, but that makes this account, this true biblical account from the Gospel of Luke, that makes that so much more intriguing because it's, it's so unmiraculous. It's so seemingly ordinary. Uh, this rather straightforward story, it's basically a story of Jesus' parents losing track of him and then finding him. That's all that we have from his childhood. Which means at least two things. Number one, the rest of his childhood, like as curious as we naturally might be about it, it's not necessary for us to know. 
I think that's an important thing for us as believers to understand uh, the sufficiency of the scriptures, the sufficiency of the Bible. God, in his word, has given us everything that we need for life and godliness, uh, either by explicit statement or by natural and logical implication. And so there remain mysteries, there remain unknowns, like Jesus' childhood. But we can take comfort knowing that everything that we need to know for salvation, for sanctification, for faithful, holy living has been given to us in the scriptures. Second, if this is the one story, like this is the one story that we have from basically 30 years of Jesus' life, well, we ought to pay very close attention. This isn't just throwaway, right? This isn't just filler. Luke has done meticulous research. His gospel is a meticulous gospel. He's writing an orderly account for Theophilus so that he might have certainty concerning the things that he's been taught. And so Luke's inclusion of this one story and ultimately God the Holy Spirit's inclusion of this one story, it's intentional. It's purposeful. It's deliberate. There's a reason why this is in here. You might remember what John said about his gospel at the very end. He says, well, if every one of the things that Jesus did were written, the, the whole world could not contain the books that would be written. Well, that's true of Luke's gospel as well. And so with any narrative that we have, but especially this one, right, the one story we have from 30 years of Jesus' life, we need to be thinking about why this why is this included of all of the stories that surely happened from the thir first 30 years of his life? Especially because, on the surface, it's so unspectacular. But before we get to our verses, uh, there, there's one thing I kind of need to address up front, because unless you have some understanding of this, the, the rest of the sermon is just not going to make any sense. It's something called the hypostatic union. Now, for some of you, this will be new. For some of you, this will be review. I think it'll be helpful for all of us to make sure that we're all on the same page with regards to this doctrine. So basically, in the early church, there's a lot of discussion about Jesus, uh, his person, right, who he is. Like, it's very clear that he's God, right? The, the, the fullness of deity dwells in him. That, that, is, that is very clear from the scriptures. But it's also very clear from the scriptures that, that he's a man. He's born of woman. He's subject to the same limitations of tiredness and hunger and physical weakness and, of course, even death that we are. And so he's clearly God and he's clearly man. But now how, how do these two things interact? Like how do these two natures come together? Well, the answer is the hypostatic union. Now, if you look in your Bibles for the term hypostatic union, you're not going to find anything. In the same way, you look in your Bibles for the word trinity. You're not going to find anything. But the trinity, while it's not explicitly defined in the scriptures, right, the trinity is one God in three persons. The idea of the trinity, that's all over the Bible. Well, in the same way, the Bible doesn't explicitly define the hypostatic union, but the idea is all over the scriptures. And so in the year 451, 
uh, at the Council of Chalcedon. Basically, you've got these theologians, you've got these pastors, they come together, they discuss the Bible's teaching on this topic, and they carefully define what it means that Jesus is both God and man. And so they say Jesus is, in his incarnation, both 100% human and 100% divine. These two natures in his one person. That's the hypostatic union. And so both natures, the human nature and the divine nature, they exist in the one person of Jesus. But he's not like half human, half divine, or like switching back and forth between being man and being God. And it's also not like the two natures just kind of mixed together so you can't tell them apart anymore. The natures remain distinct and yet are inseparably united in his one person. And so he is fully God. He always retains every divine attribute of deity. Right? Jesus is always omnipotent and omniscient and eternal. But he's also fully man. And Philippians chapter 2 is helpful here. It says, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And so he empties himself, not by losing his deity, not by losing divine attributes, otherwise he would cease to be God, which is impossible, but he empties himself by adding humanity, being born in the likeness of men. And so Jesus, in his incarnation, he gives up certain rights and prerogatives of deity, and he takes on to himself certain limitations of humanity. That's the hypostatic union. Right? That's the biblical teaching that Jesus is both fully, totally, truly God and fully, totally, truly man. So with that in mind, now let's look at our text. Look at verse 40. The child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him. Now, that's one of those verses that it's so short and so succinct that we can easily skip over it. But, but let's just think for a moment about what this verse is actually saying in light of what we just talked about with the hypostatic union. This verse is saying that Jesus went through the ordinary growth and development of a human being. Just think about that. He grew and became strong. Remember, he was born as a baby, right? He, he doesn't just appear on a cloud as a fully grown man ready to redeem his elect upon arrival. He grew physically. He got taller and heavier and stronger and older. An easy way to see this is just by looking at the words that Luke uses throughout this chapter to describe Jesus. Look in your Bibles, look at verse 16 of chapter 2. Jesus there is described as the baby lying in a manger. Now look down a little bit at verse 27. He's described as the child, Jesus. Now look down to verse 43. He's described as the boy, Jesus. And that's a good job by the ESV translators because... They use three different English words there, and that reflects three different Greek words in the original. And Luke's not just trying to use variation for the sake of using variation. He's making a point, 
And that's the same point that he's making in verse 41 that Jesus developed and grew. And that culminates in verse 52. He's no longer the child Jesus. He's no longer the boy Jesus. He's just Jesus, which is what he's going to be for the rest of the gospel. So Jesus undergoes a normal development and growth. His childhood was, in many ways, ordinary. Uh, Let me prove that to you from another text here. Uh, Keep your eye on verse 40 and look back to the last verse of chapter 1, chapter 1, verse 80. You look at what Luke says about the development and the growth of John the Baptist. And the child grew and became strong in spirit. That's Luke 1.80. The only difference between that verse and chapter 2, verse 40 Right? The verse about John the Baptist's growth and the verse about Jesus' growth, the only difference is that in spirit, in 180, is replaced by filled with wisdom in 240. Otherwise, the two descriptions are exactly the same. And that similarity is intentional. Luke, and for that matter, the ultimate author of Scripture, the Holy Spirit, careful writers, we're supposed to see this parallel. We're supposed to see that Jesus' growth and development was, in many ways, very similar to John's. And John, John the Baptist, he's just a regular human being, just like you and me in our growth and development. Let me drive this point home. Give me one more parallel. Look at verse 52. Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. Now think about what the Old Testament says about the prophet Samuel. 1 Samuel chapter 2, verse 26. Now the boy Samuel continued to grow both in stature and in favor with the Lord and also with man. That's the exact same description. And so Jesus' growth and development wasn't all that different from Samuel's growth and development. And it wasn't all that different from John the Baptist's growth and development. Now, part of that growth and development was physical, but another part of that growth and development was mental and intellectual. Because Jesus grows in, look at verse 40 again, wisdom. He becomes strong, filled with wisdom. Now, that's fascinating to think about. Uh, Maybe you've never really given this much thought, but Jesus, in his growth and in his development, learned things. Kind of like how you and I learn things. And this is where our understanding of the hypostatic union is necessary and helpful. Because in his deity, of course, Jesus is omniscient. He knows all things. You forget about uh, baby, child, all that kind of stuff. Jesus has eternally existed as omniscient God. But in his incarnation... He voluntarily chooses not to express his omniscience at times. He doesn't cease to be omniscient. Like later, we're going to see that he, he, he knows people's innermost thoughts. But he also, in his human nature, doesn't know certain things. Concerning the day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. So omniscience concerning his return is one of the things that he voluntarily chooses not to express in his incarnation. But most importantly for our context, he voluntarily chooses not to express his omniscience 
as a child. And so he learns things. Verse 40, he increases in wisdom. That is mind-blowing, right? The God who created trees and animals is learning, like other kids, about trees and animals. The God who created the order and the logic that govern our universe, he is learning the rules of logic and math and physics. The same God who confused the languages of the people at Babel is himself learning the Hebrew alphabet. And most directly here, wisdom, think about how the, the Proverbs define wisdom, living in the fear of the Lord, knowledge applied to living a life glorifying to God. Well, Jesus grew and increased in that wisdom. Jesus, as a child, grew in his understanding of God's word and God's will and God's purposes. And so in that sense, Hebrews 2.17, he was made like his brothers in every respect. But this is where, again, the hypostatic union is such a helpful framework for us because Jesus is not just fully, totally, truly man. He's also fully, totally, truly God. And so we need to be careful here. We need to acknowledge that while Jesus' growth and development was in many ways similar to ours, his growth and his development was also altogether different from us. And that difference comes from those three very important words at the end of Hebrews 4.15. He's one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Without sin. And so his physical growth and his mental development, his spiritual growth, all unaffected by sin. For example, as he grows, he learns about sin by learning the law of God without ever having experienced committing sin himself, which makes him altogether unlike us. He learns about God, but he never has a blasphemous thought about God, which again makes him altogether unlike us. All other children have foolishness bound up in their hearts. And so wisdom needs to displace and drive out that innate foolishness, but Jesus' heart had no innate foolishness to compete with the wisdom that he was increasing in. And so he's got this perfectly sanctified growth and development that is altogether unlike ours. The hypostatic union, right? Jesus is fully God and fully man, and that has some fascinating implications for his development as a child. But now look at verse 41. His parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover. And when he was 12 years old, they went up according to custom. And so Jesus, along with his family, they go up to Jerusalem for the Passover. There were three feasts for which all Jewish men were required to go to Jerusalem every year. We've got the Passover, uh, the Feast of Pentecost, and the Feast of Booths. But the Passover and the accompanying Feast of Unleavened Bread, that was the grand celebration. That was the full week of remembering God's faithfulness and his goodness in delivering the Israelites out of bondage in Egypt. So Joseph and Mary, and by the way, if you read the, 
the passage right before this, and you see how faithful they are in upholding God's law, even in the, with the sacrifices and with the purification and all that. Well, here, Joseph and Mary are presented as being faithful, again, to the law in going up to Jerusalem for this Passover. They make this 80-mile journey all the way from Nazareth to Jerusalem. But you can see in the text how Luke purposely draws attention to their faithfulness. Because Luke doesn't just say, when Jesus was 12 years old, his parents went to Jerusalem for the feast of the Passover. If he had said that, the story would have been exactly the same. But instead, what he says is, his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover. And when he was 12 years old, they went up according to custom. You see that? Luke is purposely bringing our attention to the fact that Joseph and Mary were faithful believers. And their faithfulness is displayed in their consistent attendance of the gathering of God's people. Quick application here. I think Joseph and Mary, and for that matter Luke, I think they would count it very strange that professing Christians, those who claim to be faithful believers, would regularly miss church, would regularly miss the gathering of God's people. Of course, providential hindrances arise from time to time. Uh, but friend, if church is basically a game time decision every Sunday morning, if, if it's not a top priority in your life to be with the people of God, I think you ought to seriously examine yourself. Uh, are you really born again? Because God's people in every age, look at Joseph and Mary, God's people are those who gather to worship him. So Joseph and Mary are faithful to go every year. And so in many senses, it's a year like any other. It's a pilgrimage like any other. But on this particular occasion, when Jesus is 12 years old, well, the family sets out to go home, and Jesus stays behind. Now, back then, they would have traveled in large caravans for, for trips like this, uh, for safety and for fellowship. And so you can just picture in your mind's eye this large group of people from the small town of Nazareth. They're all traveling together to Jerusalem, and they're all traveling together from Jerusalem, and everybody knows each other. And so, you know, the road trip is like half the fun. The downside, though, of traveling in a large group is exactly what happens in our story. Anybody in this room who's been a parent for long enough we're kind of reading this, and we're, we're, we're careful not to pass too much judgment on Joseph and Mary because we've all done the exact same thing. Remember last summer we were at the beach. It's a hot day. It's like perfect beach weather. A beach is packed, and, and I'm playing in the water with one of my kids, and uh, my wife is playing in the, the sand with two of our kids, and uh, that's all great and fun and, and wonderful, except we have four kids. <laughs> so go to my wife and I say, hey, where's Paxton? He said, I thought he was with you. I thought he was with you. And then the, the panic and the dread set in and I'm running up and down the beach. I'm, I'm looking in the water. I'm looking in the sand. I'm looking for my son. And there he is. He's holding the, the hand of a, uh, <laughs> an old lady and with a smile right across his face. No clue that anything was wrong. <laughs> Supposing him to be in the group. 
supposing him to be in the group. Uh, Mary thought he was with Joseph. Joseph thought he was with Mary. Or maybe they both thought that he was with his friends. They suppose that he was in the group, and they don't realize that he's missing until they had gone a day's journey. And remember, there's no cell phones. There's no find my friends. They've got to turn around. They've got to rush back to Jerusalem. And so that's another full day. And after searching for him all day, on the third day, they finally find him in the temple. And what is he doing? Look at verses 46 to 48. After three days, they found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. When his parents saw him, they were astonished. So there Jesus is with the experts, with the teachers. But he's not just sitting on the fringes, just kind of like taking it all in. He is right in the midst of them, listening to them, learning from them, asking them questions, answering their questions. So you can just imagine Jesus asking questions that show just a great grasp of the law. And Jesus answering the questions of the teachers in a way that shows a great understanding of God's word. And Jesus just making these connections between David and, and Adam and Hezekiah and, and drawing inferences from Micah and Zephaniah and Isaiah. I mean, wouldn't you have loved to be a fly on the wall for that? To hear 12-year-old Jesus go back and forth with the experts of the law. It says that all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. It's exactly what happens when he's older. Luke 4.32, they were astonished at his teaching, for his word possessed authority. We see a foreshadowing of that even here at age 12. But as amazed as the people are hearing Jesus' questions, look at verse 48, his parents are astonished, but not for the same reasons. Verse 48, his mother said to him, son, why have you treated us so Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. And now look at Jesus' response in verse 49. And you need to pay close attention here because this response is the main point of this passage. Here we have the first recorded words of Jesus and really the only recorded words of Jesus until he's about 30 years old. He said to them, Why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house. You see the contrast there. Your father and I have been searching for you. I must be in my father's house. That's the point of this narrative. That's the point of this story. That's why this story is in our Bibles. Your father and my father. Your father and I have been searching for you. I must be in my father's house. There's a few places in the Old Testament uh, towards the end of the book of Isaiah in which God is referred to as our father, Israel's father, like in a collective sense. And Israel is collectively referred to as God's son in a kind of redemptive and covenantal sense in several places in the Old Testament. But nobody, nobody, not Abraham, 
not Moses, not David, not Elijah, nobody in the Old Testament ever refers to God directly as my Father. But that's exactly what Jesus does here for the very first time. And that's exactly what he's going to do for the rest of his life. My Father. And to understand the significance of that, let's flip over one book, the Gospel of John, chapter 5. The context here in John 5 is that Jesus heals a man on the Sabbath, and you know, the Pharisees are all upset because he healed someone on the Sabbath. John 5, verses 17 and 18, Jesus answered them, My Father is working until now, and I am working. This is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but here it is, he was even calling God his own father, my father, making himself equal with God. And so by saying my father in referring to God, in calling God his father individually, Jesus is making himself equal with God. That's what he meant. That's how the Pharisees understood it, and that's why they wanted to kill him so badly. I must be in my father's house. This, friends, is a declaration of deity. Jesus here, at age 12, he is declaring a unique relationship with God. He fully understands who he is. He is God's son. And remember what we read earlier in verse 40, right, that he grows in wisdom. So he was not born with this knowledge, so to speak. But as he reads the scriptures, as he learns about God and his purposes from the scriptures, as he learns about the prophesied Messiah, he comes to understand that he himself is God's son. I must be in my father's house. Joseph is my adoptive human father, but God is my father. And so Nazareth is where my house is, but the temple, that's my father's house. Mary and Joseph, did you not know? That implies that Mary and Joseph should have known. They should have known from what the angel Gabriel said. Uh, they should have known from what the shepherds told them about their angelic encounter. They should have known from what Simeon and Anna said in the temple courtyard. I mean, they also knew from 12 years of raising him, this is no ordinary child. Now, they wouldn't have had a, a well-developed Athanasian Trinitarianism like we might, but they knew that he was the Son of God. But they didn't really know who he was. Did you not know? But Jesus, he knows exactly who he is. He is God. He is equal with God. He is the Son of God. But he was even calling God his own Father, making himself equal with God. But it's not just an understanding of who he is that Jesus expresses here. It's also an understanding of what he came to do. Suppose someone was looking for you at, I don't know, 10 o'clock tonight. You would say to them, did you not know that I would be at home? 
But look at what Jesus says. It's not, did you not know that I would be in my Father's house? It's, did you not know that I must be in my Father's house? Must. It's a word that Jesus is going to use over and over and over again in this gospel to emphasize the necessity of his mission. That the Son of Man goes as it has been determined. That he's received a charge from his Father that he must fulfill. Take a quick trip through the Gospel of Luke and let me show you this. Luke 4.43, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns as well. For I was sent for this purpose. And so his purpose, the divine necessity of his mission is that he must preach the good news. Luke 9.22, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. Luke 13.33, nevertheless, I must go on my way today and tomorrow and the day following, for it cannot be that a prophet should perish away from Jerusalem. Luke 22.37, I tell you that this scripture must be fulfilled in me. And he was numbered with the transgressors. What was written about me has its fulfillment. And one more, Luke 24, 44. These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms, here it is again, must be fulfilled. So at age 12, Jesus not only understands who he is, the Son of God, but he also understands what he's come to do, his mission. And that mission is to do his Father's will. And the point, remember the point, the contrast between your Father and my Father, the point is that his being the Son of God and his doing the will of the Father, that supersedes all other things in his life, including any and all human relationships or expectations, including those of his own human parents, Joseph and Mary. Who he is, what he's come to do, that takes precedence over even the closest family ties. And that's exactly the point that he makes later when he says, who are my mother and who are my brothers? Whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and my sister and my mother. But lest you think he's going to start his public ministry the next day, well, that's going to wait for another 18 years. Let me think about that. Jesus has just declared himself to be God, my Father. And he's just declared the necessity of his mission. I must be in my Father's house. And the very next verse, verse 51, he went down with them, came from Nazareth, and was submissive to them. Friends, that is remarkable. We were half expecting him to just make his grand entrance onto the world stage. Stay in Jerusalem. Kick off your ministry. But it goes back to Nazareth. Small town Nazareth. Can anything good come from Nazareth? And then Luke goes out of his way to tell us that he was submissive to his parents. As if to correct any wrong notions that we might have that, well, now that he's declared himself to be God and now that he's declared his mission, he no longer has to obey his parents. The priority of his mission means that he no longer has to be submissive to them. Well, no. He obeys them. 
He is submissive to them, even though, and this is the real irony of this passage, he is submissive to them, even though they don't get it. Look at verse 50. They clearly don't get who he is and what he came to do, and he knows it perfectly, but he's submissive to them. Why? Well, again, this points to the divine necessity of his mission. He does that because it's exactly God's perfect purpose for him to do that, for Jesus to remain in Nazareth for him to be submissive to his parents, for him to fulfill the law in that regard until his hour should come. So now we can answer the question that we had in the beginning of the sermon. Like, why? Well, why of all of the things that surely happened in the first 30 years of his life, why this one story? Well, the answer is because Jesus came to do his Father's will. John 6, 37, For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And so it's fitting, and it's purposeful, and it's intentional that the only thing that we know about his childhood is the one event that's perhaps most illuminating in that regard. Like, if his purpose on earth was to do miracles, then it would have been fitting for Luke to have given us a story of him doing a miracle. If his purpose on earth was to bring world peace, then it would have been fitting for Luke to have given us a story of, I don't know, Jesus settling some conflict as a 12-year-old. If his purpose on earth was to be an earthly king, well, then it would have been fitting for Luke to have given us a story in which that was the main point. But his purpose on earth was to, as the Son of God, fulfill the Father's will. And so we only have one story from his childhood, and the main point of that story is the declaration, the plain declaration of that truth. I must be in my father's house. But now, of course, we need to ask, we're talking a lot about Jesus' mission, the will of the Father. What was the will of the Father? What did he come to do? Why must Jesus do all of these things? The answer is in Luke chapter 19, verse 10. The, the, the thesis statement of this book. For the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. He came to save lost sinners like you and like me. And that's why he must do all of these things. That's why the Son of Man must suffer many things for me and for you. The reason Jesus came into the world, the reason for the incarnation, the reason for the hypostatic union, the reason that Jesus became fully man while remaining fully God was so that he could save sinners. The saying is trustworthy, deserving of full acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. So this same Jesus, well, he's 12 years old in our story. About 18 years later, he would begin his public ministry. And all throughout, he's holy, innocent, unstained. But remember, his own people do not receive him. And so the, the same kinds of teachers who engage with him when he's 12 years old are seeking to kill him. And kill him they did as he was hung on a cross. 
And so on that cross, Jesus takes upon himself all of our sins. He takes our sin, and in exchange, he gives us his perfect righteous record. But as the bearer of our sin, he suffers the wrath of God, and he dies in our place. But friends, Jesus doesn't remain in the grave. We saw in our narrative today, Mary and Joseph, they search for Jesus. And when they find him on the third day, he asks them a question. Why were you looking for me? Later in the gospel, it's a different group. Luke only identifies them as the women who would come with him from Galilee. They're searching for Jesus, but they're not searching for him on the third day because they left town without him. They're searching for him on the third day because the stone was rolled away. And this time, it's not Jesus who asks the revealing question. It's some angels. Luke 24, 5, why do you seek the living among the dead? Jesus rose again. His tomb is empty. He's defeated death and sin and the devil on behalf of all who trust in him. And so all of this, all of this, his perfect life, his substitutionary death, his glorious resurrection, the gospel, Jesus must do all of those things. He came to do the Father's will, and this is the will of my Father, John 6, 40, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life. That's what he came to do. So friends, I tell you to look and live today. To look on Jesus, his person and his work, who he is. He's the Son of God and what he came to do. He came to die for sinners like you and me. To look on Jesus and so be saved. Because of our sin against the holy God, each and every one of us deserves an eternity in hell. But the good news, the gospel, is that Jesus came to seek and save the lost. The good news, the gospel, is that if you repent of your sins and you place your trust in Christ today, you too can be saved. Let me give you one quick application point before we close our time in this story. And this application point is for all the believers in the room. Let's rejoice in your adoption. Remember the key verse in this story. Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? Friends, one of the most glorious truths of the entire Bible is that for those who trust in Christ, you've been united to him. It's no longer you who live, but Christ who lives in you. You've died, and your life is hidden with Christ. And so one of the glorious implications of that is that you, dear saint, you, in Christ, are a son of God, a daughter of God, adopted as the children of God. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Remember how I said uh, earlier that no Jew would have ever called God my father. Well, think about what Jesus says in John chapter 20. Speaking to Mary Magdalene, after his resurrection, go to my brothers 
and say to them, I am ascending to, here it is, my father and your father. My God and your God. Friends, you see that? That is wonderful. My father and your father. Friends, God is our father. God is my father. God is your father if you are in Christ. Galatians 4, 6, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. And so, my brothers and sisters in Christ, I encourage you to simply rejoice in that truth every single day. Rejoice because he is your father. You can go to him in prayer. For Christ taught his disciples to pray, Our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Friend, rejoice because you can cast all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Rejoice because if you're a child, you're also an heir. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. Friend, rejoice because you will never taste the judgment for your sins in hell because Christ has taken that for you. And when you pass from this life to the next, you're just beginning to live forever in the presence of your Father. Brothers and sisters, rejoice in your adoption. Did you not know that I must be in my Father's house? Well, I am ascending to my Father and your Father. Let's pray. Father in heaven, what a joy it is to be able to address you as our Father in heaven. Lord, we thank you for our adoption as sons and daughters in Christ Jesus. Father, we pray that we, your people, would rejoice in that truth every single day, that we would never take that for granted. Father, we pray for those in this room who do not know you as Father. Pray that today would be the day of salvation, that today would be the day that they trust in Christ, in his person and his work. And we ask this in Jesus' name.